I did X. Let me tell you about it, Steph. Then that's different, uh, which I'm going to do today. So, uh. <laughs> I make that noise too much. <laughs> uh, here we go. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your week going? It's going really well. I have discovered a new note-taking app that I'm very excited about, because apparently, uh, in addition to mechanical keyboards, the other thing I obsess about is how I'm taking notes. I guess slides too. How people do slides is always something that intrigues me. I feel like every time I'm doing a presentation, I'm always looking for like, how are the cool kids making slides these days? But anywho. Uh, I wonder the- if the cool kids don't actually make slides. Just throwing that out there as an option. Ooh, mm, <laughs> or like there's stratification. There's true. a middle tier of uh, cool where you stop making <laughs> slides and then you become cool again when you're very, I don't know. But anyway... <laughs> Okay, the cool educational kids that, you know, we're, we're, I'm just going to put those together. How are they making slides? But for the, the note-taking app, so I've, I've been pivoting between a couple different ones. Currently, I have two of them going because I'm trying to figure out which one I'm going to go forward with. And so I'm using one that's called Standard Notes. And then I'm also using Evernote, which is one I've been using for a while. So Standard Notes was me sort of going out and exploring a different application for taking notes. And I like it, but I don't love it enough to keep mm. going with it. It's not improving my world enough over Evernote to really make the full switch. So then I'm thinking about going back to Evernote. And then Eliza, who works at ThoughtBot, um, was showing off a note-taking app that's called Rome Research. And it looks amazing in a sense. Have you have you heard of it before? I've heard of it. And I think I like went to their marketing page, but I haven't gone further. I'm still in the early stages of where I don't know much about it, but there seems to be pretty much like you can easily associate all your notes um, to other notes. So you can link them very easily. There's also a really nice collapsible feature. So if you're adding indentation for different notes, then you can collapse it kind of like when we were talking before in GitHub comments where we use like the details and summary, and then you can collapse that information. So you can have that in notes as well. There's like a graph view. So then you can see like which note and which associations it has it looks very cool it has a nice search feature i'm very excited to check it out and it seems to have some pretty positive reviews i'm not sure if it costs money how they make money if this is just Mm. something for the world that they've crafted so i'm always interested in that when i'm using a new product is like what's happening to my data or if you don't charge money then why are why are you building this application for the world so i still have some research to do but i'm super excited to check it out that's awesome. I've bounced between a lot of different note-taking apps. And at this point, I, I almost would say I don't even have one. I've sort of backed away from them. But I've like tried Evernote in the past. Simple Note I was on for a while, I want to say. And a couple of I think I used Bear very briefly. But I've sort of backed away. I became a digital pack rat. And I recognized that I wasn't ever revisiting my notes. So I'm wondering, I want to like poke more at the specific technologies. But more broadly with your note-taking, like what are you taking notes on? And do you review it? And do you find all of that valuable? Or... Are you like me where sometimes you look at your pile of notes and you're like, "Ah, I'm scared of those and then you don't look at them again? I use them for two primary reasons. So yes, I do look back at them, but it's very specific ones that I'll look back at. So if I made myself a note where I've learned something new, then those notes I tend to reference, I recall them like, oh, I'm pretty sure I've run into this before, or I remember writing about this before, and then I'll go to my notes and search for it. And that has been helpful. I also find just writing stuff down helps me retain it. So some of it's more just the practice of writing it down than helps me recall it later. 
So I think, yeah, the answer is I do revisit it. But honestly, even if I don't, that's fine. Like it's Mm -hmm. there if I want it and I don't have to worry about it anymore. I think I got really caught up in the like thinking about the taxonomy and is it notebooks or is it tags and how do I structure this and where does it go and then when do I look it up and how and how do I make sure I can rediscover a thing and it's like whatever just put some words in a thing I actually as part of the little personal app that I'm building I built a journal portion so it's less I don't think of it as note taking although I, I'm now starting to revisit that as you're describing some of the uses that you have but it's more of like a personal journal diary sort of thing where I'm just you know writing about the world at any given time and I'm very sporadic with my usage, but I found that really useful and very similar to what you were saying of like, I just write words into it and I do revisit it from time to time. But even if I didn't, just the act of sitting down and writing where I'm at, where my head's at, what I'm thinking about, I found a lot of value in that. Yeah, that's certainly partially why I want it. And I've also realized kind of like you, like the less structure, the better for me. Like I really just want a space and I do want some structure in the sense like I can go back to like maybe I'm keeping a history of something. So if I have like logs of each day and I want to keep track with that, then I know that note to go back to. But otherwise, I've really backed away from trying to categorize anything. I don't want stuff in buckets because then I have to think about where it belongs. And then if it fits in two different buckets and I panic a little bit and I don't know which one to put it in. So I really just want like a really great search feature. And that's it. Like that's really all the help I want with my notes and some nice markdown. That too. Now, question for you. Have you at any point considered building your own note-taking application? You know you know, I have. Well, you probably don't know that, but yes. <laughs> I, I, I assumed it was possible. I know that I am broken in that way, and I assume that you're also broken. You're like, when you were describing earlier, you're like, this one works, but it's not like perfect for me. Yeah, I know that feel. I know what happens after I feel that feel. I am pretty confident in the past I have sat down to do it and start it. And then I just never went through with it because I'm like, ah, oh, but this other thing does enough. And like, there's a bunch of other cool stuff that I wanted to learn and work on. So I just always put it off, which I'm kind of glad like other people have already spent a lot of time in this particular space. So if I'm going to continue learning, like I'm not sure that's the thing that I would want to use my creative space on. Yeah, to be clear, I don't think it's a good idea to write anything like this on your own. The only reason I do it is because particularly for the like note taking sort of thing, I really didn't want to get locked into any particular platform. I was using day one for a while, which is an iOS and maybe I think it's a Mac app as well for journaling. But I didn't like some of the proprietary formatting aspects. And when I tried to get out of it, that proprietary formatting stuff kind of came with it. And I just felt weirdly locked in and the subscription, like there were aspects about it that made me uncomfortable from a, this is very important data to me. So I want to own it. And then I was like, well, this will be a fun little thing to do. And it has been fun. And actually, it's I've not had like feature creep or anything like that. I've been pretty minimal in, in what I've built. And it's been a good challenge is like as I've been exploring inertia, I have ported this whole logic from GraphQL and whatever over to inertia. And that was great and a lot of fun. Although on the counterpoint, I used to regularly rebuild the same like to do app, my own personal. This is how I want a to do app to work. And it was just worse than everything that was out there. It was slightly more specific to my workflow, but it just wasn't that like it didn't work on mobile as well as I wanted. And it just wasn't that good. I think I'm an okay software developer, but it's a really hard thing to build like a distributed application that works on all the like that's hard. So at this point, I just use Trello for to do's and that is perfectly sufficient and it works on all the platforms and it's great. 
It's funny that you mentioned day one, because I'm pretty sure that's what prompted me to consider maybe I should build my own note application is because I am also using day one for journaling here and there when I can remember to do it. And I had the same thought. I was like, man, I, I have I'm like, I'm bought into this now. Like they have my content. But then mm-hmm. I looked into it and they do have a nice API. So you can extract and download all of your content. So that made me feel far more comfortable with purchasing and then storing my thoughts with them. Uh, but then it also prompted us like, well, if I'm going to like have a, a way to get out of this, like, why not just go ahead and get out of it now and have my own? And I'm like, oh, yeah, because I want to do other stuff with my weekend. That's why. <laughs> so that's why I, I didn't build it. Day one's actually a really great piece of software, but it was, like I said, just a uniquely personal set of data that I wanted to own a little bit more. But also looping back to your comments about presentations and what do people use, I hope I didn't come across as in any way judging you. I'm definitely the sort of person who makes presentations. In fact, this past weekend, one of my friends, it was their birthday. And so for her birthday, everyone that was coming to the party, virtual, of course, we all made a three-minute lightning talk. Uh, This was the Nonsense Presentation Symposium, and we each had to do a lightning talk in our three minutes. And it was fantastic. Uh, I made my slides in Google Slides at that point because I had waited till the absolute last minute. And typically, I'll use Dexet for presentations, which allows for markdown and some stuff like that. But in this case, I was like, I'm just putting pictures on a slide, and I want it to be on the internet and safe going with Google presentations. But what's your presentation tool of choice? That's really fun. I got to say it's Google Slides. That's what I just did today. Mm -hmm. It was like a last minute, like I need to put something in front of people because it will also help me talk about it. And I just went for Google Slides because it's just the quickest and easiest and and does basically what I need. If I'm doing a more code heavy presentation, I would need something else. I know I've used, I want to say it's Reveal.js. I'm blanking on the Mm -hmm. name a little bit. But I've used that in the past, and that's more for when I'm teaching. So there's also a lot of flexibility and code syntax highlighting and stuff like that that comes with it. So that that was pretty nice. That's worked well for me. But that's like a, a much bigger like project if I'm going to reach for something like that. That sounds awesome, by the way. Yeah. The party where everybody gives a lightning talk. It was absolutely fantastic. That's cool. On a slightly different topic, but something else I'm excited about is the client team that I'm working with, they now have access to GitHub's draft PRs, which is a newer feature. I actually, I think it has been out for a while, but it's a newer feature for me. It's something that I haven't used before, and it has a really cool idea where you can essentially use PRs for just communication purposes, which is something that I already currently do, but I just always put in the title where I'm like, you know, this isn't for merging, this is just for communication. And now that they have draft PRs that actually uh, facilitate that, so they will highlight the PRs as something that's not going to be merged, it's blocked until you move it into like the ready to review state. And I think they also changed the color for the draft PR. I haven't made one yet, I'm excited, but those are just the two loose things that I know about it. Have you worked with those before? Yes, I definitely have. I'm trying to think. I don't know where it's enabled and where it's not. I think like you have to have a certain level of team thing. And I know GitHub just made teams free for certain levels as well. But I think draft PRs are part of the feature set of if you're paying for it. So different organizations have it and some don't. The current clients that I'm working with do not have it. But in the past, I have worked with uh, teams that do. And I like it. It's just enough formalization of that workflow. Because like, I've definitely done the same thing where I just start the whatever the PR description is with WIP. WIP, please don't take this seriously. Please don't merge it, that kind of thing. But I like the, the slight formalization because I think it's a very useful thing to be able to put up some code before you've spent like a week working on this giant PR that keeps growing. Like, let me just put up what I have now and let me make it very clear that this is not for merging, but let me get initial feedback on like broad architecture. And I think that's a super useful workflow. And so having it a little bit more embraced by the platform is really nice. 
I think you're you're right. That's the reason I haven't gotten to play with it is because I haven't been part of a team that's paying for that feature. And I'm now part of a team that has that special status where they have bought into that team tier that's given us access to it. So yeah, that's some of the stuff that I'm excited about lately. Uh, how about you? What's going on in your world? Let's see a couple things. So uh, one, finally got to try out Prettier Ruby for real. Uh, it is fantastic. It is everything I would want it to be. Unsurprisingly, I hate the formatting but that doesn't matter. It's very fast. It works. I've not seen any issues whatsoever. It does exactly what I want it to do. But man, I just, somebody else's formatting is always going to be a thing, like hanging indents and things like that. There's a couple subtle things where I've adopted a certain style that in my mind is just the style. That's how one writes Ruby. But it turns out it's one of many possible variations and Ruby actually has one of the more flexible syntaxes. So Prettier Ruby has a certain choice that was made, and I think there's probably some flexibility in configuration, but it's definitely one of those things where it's like, nope, that's not what we do. We turn on an auto-formatter and we let it go. So it's been great. We have it on the client project that I'm working on, and now we have some JavaScript, TypeScript, React-type code, and that's all getting prettier, and then basically everything is running through the same sort of lifecycle. So I have COC and Vim doing the auto-formatting, and it just runs prettier, and it all just works, and I'm very happy about that. That's super exciting to hear. Uh, so I, I can't recall if you and I have talked about this, but each Friday morning for about 30, 45 minutes, I've been syncing up with Kevin Dice, who is the author of Prettier Ruby, and another friend, Ryan Hunter, and we've been pairing for that time slot each Friday on Prettier Ruby. So that's super exciting that you're using it and that you're loving it and that it's going well. Specifically right now, what we are working on this morning, uh, being today a Friday, is we're working on how comments are being handled and making sure that comments are being noticed and then placed in the correct spot so we don't run into any errors. And it's been really intriguing to see how this project works and also how much like Prettier already does. So Kevin has given many accolades to like what a great job Prettier does and how stable the API has been to then add Prettier Ruby and incorporate Prettier with it. So that's been a lot of fun. So I'll, I'll certainly let him know that you're using it and that it's going really well. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for the efforts then, because it's a really interesting project where the bar for correctness is so high. Like if there's anything even slightly weird about it, then we can't use it because it has to be this tool that we trust just sort of implicitly. And if it ever behaves even slightly odd, then we're going to question using it and we'll, you know, there'll be pushback. But thus far in using it, it's just been great. And again, like I have my minor quibbles about the specific formatting that it uses, but that's literally always going to be true unless I personally wrote the formatter. And frankly, that's way more work than I want to do. So uh, yeah, thank you to everyone involved. I'd be intrigued about the specific formats that you're less excited about because Kevin, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, uh, but I believe he mentioned he even incorporated some of the ThoughtBot like default formatting styles that we prefer with the idea that then we would also be excited about it and work on it and then pick it up and sort of like help it spread. So I just I think that's interesting that I, I think he went out of his way to accommodate some of those default styles that we also prefer into Prettier Ruby. So yeah, it's funny to me that there's some of them that you're not into. Oh, that's interesting. I can definitely collect a few, but I think broadly it's things where if you have a long line and it's breaking now across, mul- like there's multiple arguments to a method and it's now breaking across the line, especially if there's like a hash or something like that, then the way that it indents it is surprising to me. Typically, my usage would just be to break it to the new line, indent two spaces, and then start going. And anytime I'm indenting, it's always two spaces, as opposed to there's a style that people use where it's aligning with the opening paren of the method call or things like that. And I think Prettier Ruby is going more on the like align 
way out there with the opening paren sort of thing. So I think that's it. But again, I'm very happy to be like, well, all right, minor resistance. That's fine. It's totally worth it. Power through quiet brain. This is not what we're for. Focus on something else. Well, that's kind of what makes it the formatter, right? Is because we all have to not agree with something that it does. That way Mm. it's a compromise for everybody on the team. Oh, yeah. It's an important thing is that everyone is losing out a little bit so that we're all compromising together. Because if somebody just gets exactly what they want, then that's not fair. So cool, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally not fair for someone to be totally happy. (laughs) Indeed. So Pretty Ruby is great. I highly recommend it. At this point, it feels very stable. So um, I'm happy to use it now. Sort of, I'm going to start adding it to every project I have. But um, there's another thing that I ran into this week that was interesting. And I'm, I'm interested if you have any thoughts as to a different way to approach it. Um, but the thing that I'm working on is related to GDPR, so data stuff, uh, the system that I'm working in, there are users and users have data within the system, and then they also have data outside of the system. So say Amplitude, we have some data out there about metrics, and then Stripe in particular was the one that I was working on today. When we do a secure GDPR right to be forgotten delete, we need to get rid of all of our data about them and also get rid of the data on those external systems. And so the way this has been structured within the system that I'm working on is there's an initial job, a background job that says like, all right, we're doing a secure delete of this user. So the first thing is we create this new record to represent that idea. We copy over all the necessary data and then we delete the user record. And now we start off a bunch of other jobs to delete the other things. Each of those other things then goes, each of those other jobs, so like the amplitude delete job, the stripe delete job, they're now going to get processed asynchronously, you know, whenever Sidekick gets around to it. And when they do that, they update this deletion record, the thing that's tracking the progress of our deleting. And eventually, when all of them have completed their work, we enqueue one final job to remove the record of the deletion because it still has some of the user data in there, which is necessary to delete it in the external systems. So the specifics of the GDPR stuff and the other bits there are less relevant, although I think probably useful for context. But the key question and the key thing that I'm struggling with is the sequential workflow nature there. Having jobs that enqueue other jobs that eventually enqueue other jobs. In particular, I ran into a test that I was trying to update that tries to run through that whole happy path. And what was interesting is in the middle of it, there was a call to sidekick drain all, I think was the method. But it's basically like sidekick, do all the work now. And it was processing through everything, including the deletion of the relevant record, the deletion thing, like it was getting rid of that deletion record, the thing that was, I don't know, the important one, which is the way the whole thing's supposed to work. But I really wanted to be able to like process some of the work, pause, check out the state of the world, process some of the work, pause, check out the state of the world. Like phase one is delete all the local data. Phase two is delete all the remote data. Phase three is delete any reference to this ever existing and be able to have like those distinct steps throughout the test. But there was just no clear way to do it. So I'm both interested if there are different ways to structure the work and then also different ways to write that test or to exercise sidekick within the context of the test. As a side note, I really like how you mentioned that you created sort of like this deletion like manifest record that keeps track of everything that needs to get deleted. That sounds really nice. I like how you approach that. That is interesting that you want to do sort of like the run something, have like a an assertion like the expectation, then run something else and then have like another expectation after that. I think my default approach would have been to test each of those jobs uh, specifically as to what their behavior is and then verify that I'm calling each of those jobs and then just trust that they're doing the correct thing. And the more like feature spec that you're writing that's running through the full flow at the very end of it, write the assertions that everything I expected to be deleted is deleted. 
Can you check it at the end? Do you have to pause midway to check that something was deleted? Can you also check at the very end to be like step one was done, even though it's mm-hmm. after all of them have run? Yeah, you're asking good questions. And you also, uh, I think you're sort of giving me credit for a thing that I don't deserve credit for. A lot of what I'm describing exists. And the thing that I was doing was just adding Stripe deletion into this whole world. So the idea of having the record to model the idea that we're deleting this user, that was pre-existing. I agree. I, I think that's good, like modeling into our data things that are true in the system. But the question that you're asking about the test and the workflow, I think you sort of hit it on the head where the test as it existed, and I was trying to work in the context of that test without rethinking it, was it's probably a little too aware of the internals. Whereas the thing that matters is that we successfully delete all the data within the system and all the data external to the system. And since I don't own those external systems, the only way I can really encapsulate that is to say, like, did we interact with those systems in the correct way? Did we send the delete request to each of them? But that's going to involve some amount of stubbing and mocking. So that's fine. That's the edge of our system. That's the way that we do that. But so I could just say, given that there's this user with data in these other systems, run the big delete job, let Sidekick process through everything. And at the end, make sure there's no user record, no user deletion record, and that all of the other external systems were hit. I think that's probably the right thing to do because right now it's too coupled to internal details and that's why it's hard to test. That's why I can't do the thing. Like I'm trying to get in there too much. Yeah, that that sounds perfect to me. The the last approach that you outlined, because yeah, otherwise it sounds like we're just not trusting our unit test of those jobs. So if we've tested like this job interacts with this particular service and deletes, but then we want to run that job, but then assert right afterwards that it did its thing, then it feels like it's like, I don't actually trust that you did it. So I want to verify. So I like just saving the verification for the end of it versus trying to interstitial it in between. Yeah, I think it is definitely that case where there's this little record that gets created within the context of that. But like at the start of the test in the setup phase, that record does not exist. At the very end, it also doesn't exist because part of the work is to delete that record. So I think we just need to accept that. And that's fine that the test will never know about it. Like that is an implementation detail of how we track this internally. But yeah, this is sort of a happy path, almost like from the user perspective, did all the stuff happen? And so write it that way. Yeah, I like that. I see. I didn't realize until you just said it now that that object doesn't exist at the beginning, that sort of like deletion manifest record, that you don't have that. But I do like what you just said, that from the user perspective, like that doesn't matter. Like they would never know like something like that exists. And I find myself, I've been struggling with that lately as well as I'm writing some feature specs that I really want to reach in and like test some of the internals because I feel like there's one particular test I was writing recently where there's an action that happens and then we go to a different page. And looking at that page, I want to test from the user perspective that what they expected to happen happened, but I couldn't find a good way to test that. There wasn't really anything on that page. And it made me realize that I think that means we're just not giving the user adequate feedback either. Like from my acceptance test, if I don't feel good that there's something that I can assert against the page, then why would the user feel good about it either? Because they're missing that context too. That's something I've been noticing when I'm going through feature specs and trying to keep them real high level is it's, it's been helpful in pointing out small things like that to me. Yeah, I definitely have the case where I'll write a feature spec, but I get to the end and I'm like, the only way to really know that this all worked is to like do a database query and poke at some objects. But I that I know that that's wrong in that case. This other thing wasn't quite a feature spec, like it wasn't interacting with the pages at all, but it was meant to be, it's actually in the features directory and it's meant to be a, the GDPR secure delete feature, the big thing, like we're testing it from a holistic happy path perspective. 
granted, I do end up sometimes with feature specs that do poke at the database. Like if there's an admin workflow that at the end of the day, the admin doesn't see anything. But I, I think the heuristic that you're describing of like, if I have to do that, I'm probably not telling the user enough either. There should be a way for the user to know that everything went well. That's my current theory. Because yeah, I keep wanting to reach to the database to prove that something happened. And I'm like, well, they can't see the database. So it feels unfair that I get to test it in a specific way when they don't have access to it in that sense. Here's hoping they can't see the database. Otherwise, we've got bigger problems. <laughs> Otherwise, they're a hacker user. Mm. Well, I mean, if we expose the database to the world, that doesn't make them a hacker. They just, it's there. That's true. If it's on us, that's different. <laughs> that's fair. That's what all uh, websites are, right? We're just finding a pretty way to display a database. I mean, at the end of the day, if we're being honest with ourselves, 99.9% of them, yeah. But anyway, well, thank you for talking through that. I think that's actually super useful. And I may revisit that next week and see if I can shift some things around. But shifting topics slightly, I ran across something. And again, I I sort of want to get your opinion on it. There's both the specific question, but then the bigger concept behind it. The thing that I saw was an ad for Stack Overflow for Teams. Uh, And this is both going to sound like product placement, but also then I don't know that it'll sound that great. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, no affiliation. No, I just saw an ad for it. I think on Maybe on Stack Overflow. That'd be weird, actually. Are you secretly getting paid for new ads now? Uh, Probably not, because I'm about to say that I don't know that I think this is a good thing, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, Stack Overflow for Teams seems to be a hosted Stack Overflow offering. But if you are at probably a larger organization, you can now have your own internal to your organization Stack Overflow. And so it's your developers only talking to each other, but on a Stack Overflow. So say you have an internal framework or an admin system that is you know specific to your company and your team, you now have a place to talk about it. Or you can talk about Rails in there too, if you want. But that's the part that sort of is interesting to me. Having this internal knowledge silo, both is, if you're working with open source software, then I feel like there's almost not a requirement, but uh, it's probably good to pay back into the system and have those conversations in public. If you have your own framework that you made as a company, I also would question that because I've seen that happen. And then it's under documented, it's harder to work with, you can't hire people with knowledge about it, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I really struggle to find the place where I think that fits. Interestingly, ThoughtBot does have their own internal Stack Overflow like system called Ask that was made as a Haskell fun project at some point. It doesn't get a ton of usage, but it ends up being more of like a question and answer like what's your favorite gem for this? But so I'm interested in your thoughts on Stack Overflow specifically, but then also more generally on like knowledge sharing within teams. What have you seen work? What do you like? What do you not like? Yeah, so this topic is super relevant to what's going on internally with Oppa right now, because we have predominantly used Slack and we've also used Ask, the application that you were just describing, to share like all of our questions and to be able to communicate with each other. And all of it has worked really well. And then we decided to have an experiment where we use Slack less because we're recognizing that Slack is very interruptive to our workflow. So if you get messaged on Slack or something's happening, you feel the need to stay in tune and also provide updates as to what you're doing and also it's very easy to miss things that are happening so if there's a bunch of people in a channel and someone's asking a question for example we have like a ruby specific channel if someone asks a question like there's a very good chance that you're going to miss a conversation that's happening so you won't see some of the good questions some of the good answers you can't really opt in and out of conversations as easily because you still have to like scroll through and read all of them so just it feels like not the right place that we want to ask stuff we may have a question but it's not urgent but yet we want to make sure somebody sees it so then it's like well do we use slack do 
we use DMs? Do which we we don't use DMs. Uh, do we use like email? Like what do we use there? So the experiment is that we're using Basecamp for a lot more of our internal communication, and there's been some hurdles in switching over to Basecamp. Not hurdles, but it's just uh, changing your daily habits to then go somewhere else to communicate and ask questions. So Basecamp has become what it sounds like. It's kind of like that stack overflow for teams where we now go and we still have projects that are specific to maybe a particular studio or for developers or for other groups. So we can have our subgroups in there. We can post messages. People can respond to them as they want. I don't believe we're using the campfire feature as heavily. So we still have Slack for certain things. So we have like our Boston channel and we're, that's sort of our more fun. Like we just want to talk to each other and and share updates and stuff, but anything else that's more like work focus goes into Basecamp. And I used it twice today to share stuff and it felt really right. Like it was a really nice use. So there was one that I wanted to ask a question, but it's not urgent, but I wanted some people's feedback on. So Basecamp was like the perfect place where I wasn't worried about people missing it. I knew they'd get back to it when they had time. It also prompted me to write up a more thoughtful question for everybody because I had to put it in this post format. So instead of just sort of like dumping it in the Slack and sort of like being really quick about it, I had a more descriptive sort of post as like, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. Like, do y'all have feedback on this? So it's been interesting as to how it's going Uh, so far. I think I'm really going to like shifting more of our communication into Basecamp. So I guess that's my two cents (laughs) about, I do very much like the idea and I understand why Stack Overflow is creating this space for teams because I feel that pain. And I've seen other teams also talk about that where they're like, we have some really good knowledge sharing and we don't know where to capture it. And Basecamp has seemed like another place like for that as well. So you can ask a very specific question, like maybe you're trying to upgrade Ruby with ASDF and you're running into problems. That conversation is now captured in Basecamp. So if anyone else runs into that, they can search for it and they can also go back to it. You can search in Slack too, so that's there, but I just feel like the Basecamp approach is a bit easier to find and read. I think there's a couple things sort of tied up in what you were just describing. One is a contention around like immediate chat type conversations versus more async. Uh, So Basecamp being the more like, let's be a little more purposeful, let's not expect an immediate response. But I really like what you were saying around it forces you to think it through a little bit more, be a little more purposeful, like add a little bit more context and explanation. Here's the things I've tried, et cetera, rather than the like, hey, has anyone tried this? And the like one quick message that you might post off in Slack or that one might, I also do this, that one might post off in Slack. There's another tool that I've seen in that space called Twist. It's from the Todoist team uh, or Doist is the company, but it's another let's move away from the constant back and forth of Slack or other chat tools and let's have a more purposeful but still threaded, labeled groups you can mention, et cetera, et cetera, discussion tool. Yeah, so I think there's some interesting things around that. I guess I was viewing the question more from discovery. How do we gather all this data and then how do we make it available? And then there's also a public versus private thing. So there's like there's all of these different axes on which to slice this question. And I really like what you were saying about the async versus synchronous. And then on the public versus private, I struggle because I think there's a lot of utility to saying like, I feel safe within this organization. I know who the people are. I know how they'll respond. So I feel more safe asking the question here than I might on a truly public forum. So there's definitely that. But at the same time, the like, now we have a knowledge silo. Now it's our secret pile of knowledge about Rails when it's like, that might be better out in the world. And I think ThoughtBot does a great job of writing blog posts and putting it into the public guides and having more of those sort of things get promoted to public communication. But that's another interesting part to me. And then I think the other thing, I've just so many times struggled with wikis and things like that, where they're just places that knowledge goes to die. 
And I, I really struggle against that. It's the like hierarchical structure of wikis that they're just never right because organizations are always changing and how many products do we have and how many different platforms and which technologies are we using and what's the onboarding workflow for this product? It's like, that doesn't work. Put it in code or it's a lie. Comments are future lies. That's a true thing that I feel. But yeah, I guess there's just too much tied up in this now that I've been rambling for a few minutes about it. For the public versus private, I feel like I would have an initial resistance to the idea of Stack Overflow doing that because Stack Overflow right now is in the public space. Mm. So I think of it as a place where people are intentionally like sharing and trying to be very open with their questions and then people can respond to that freely. So then the idea that they're creating a space where people can continue those conversations that I can't see then gives me sort of like that concern of like, well, why are we moving into the private space? Why shouldn't we continue to keep this public? So that feels like a very like reasonable reaction and I can empathize with that. I think my other feeling around that too is while I really admire that folks continue to like push for like this should be public and I really like when people push for that and I try to be that person myself as well because I often need the reminder. But at the end of the day, it's just one of those. It's like, it's not always going to happen. Like we're going to have conversations that are going to be more relevant and specific to our organizations and our team. And we're going to feel more comfortable. Not everybody is going to feel comfortable with public space and they shouldn't have to right away. That's something that can come with time. So I think my overall idea is like, if you can make it public, that's wonderful. But I also very much support the idea that you you should have a private space that you get to talk about this stuff. And then as soon as you've talked about it, then if you can make it public, then like, please do like there's that second sort of step, like go ahead and make it private at first if you need to within your organization. But then if you've discovered something neat, then totally share it, you could repost it to maybe if uh, Stack Overflow, if their team feature had like a functionality that was like, send this question back into the public space, take it out of the team space, because because we think it's a good conversation, that would be a really awesome feature that would then encourage people to keep asking stuff in the public or at least sharing answers and sharing questions with the public. I mean, actually, now I wonder about how the functionality works. I know like GitHub has functionality where if you're in a pull request, you can see references to that pull request from other ones. But if you are part of a private repo that references that issue, now you can see that private one in the thread as well. So like your private GitHub access sort of folds into the open source and that becomes like, do you just go to stackoverflow.com search, but then your team stuff is also in the list. Whereas if you're not part of that organization, you don't see the private team stuff. I wonder if it has that behavior. But yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying of like the private space needs to exist. And I think any hesitancy I have around it is just that I associate Stack Overflow so strongly with its public presence, with it being this public forum that has been so valuable over time for people that there's just a little bit like well, Stack Overflow for private, though. That's weird. At the same time, though, I'm a person who has never posted a question on Stack Overflow because I don't know, there's a weird voice in my head that says, well, people think you're dumb or something like that. So it's not like a purposeful, really well thought out thing, but I am surprised looking back at my many years of being a developer and that I've never asked a question on there. It's an important part of our culture, at least for you and I. Like that's something that we really value and cherish. So anytime we see someone that's starting to increment like towards taking that away, we're like, whoa, 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 we, like we should, we should talk about this. So I... I imagine I'm just projecting my emotions onto you now, but now you got a pretty good read. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, that's that's why you're feeling that way. It's because that's how it makes me feel, too. Even if I'm not active myself, I'm, I'm just like you. I don't think I've ever posted a question on Stack Overflow, but I have consumed a lot from Stack Overflow and I really mm -hmm. appreciate that it's there. So I, I wouldn't want that knowledge to go away. I do try. I got 
chastised is too strong of a word, but I got some constructive feedback at one point that I like went to Stack Overflow, was looking through. There were a couple of different answers, but one was definitively the right answer. Like, I think I tried two of them. One was the correct answer. One didn't work for me. Uh, and then I was like, oh, cool. Well, I'm glad I found the correct one. And the person was like, why aren't you upvoting it? You have to upvote that. And I was like, oh, you're right. I, I need to pay back into the system. This little, like, I just did some validation of the answers here. I should add the little bit back. And there's actually a wonderful post called The Golden Rule, I want to say. It's on a blog called The Pug Automatic, which I love the name. And it has this wonderful steampunk pug, which I think we've talked about before. And I believe the author's name is Heinrich Nih. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, unfortunately, but he's Heinrich on Twitter and the Pug Automatic is the blog, which is a fantastic blog. And every time I end up there, I'm so glad to be there. But that idea, the golden rule of like, make a blog post, upload an issue, respond to a comment, like pay back into this system because we all benefit so much from it. I think it was uh, Lindsay Christensen, our CMO at ThoughtBot that called me out on this or called somebody else out on it that I was near. I can't remember the exact details, but it was the idea of applying it to social media that if you're like scrolling through someone's pages, like let's say Instagram, and you see that it created a video that you really liked, but you don't like it, or you don't like comment on it or give them like some praise for that hard work. I think she called it being like a social media like lurker. In the mm-hmm. sense that you're just lurking and you're like taking in the content, but you're never giving any feedback or any like thanks to the people who are creating the content. And ever since she made that comment, it has made me far more aware that when I see something that I enjoy, I want to give it praise. And I want that person to know that I'm praising it versus being that that lurker. <laughs> uh, that might apply to like the what you were just saying with the Stack Overflow, where it's that golden rule of like, let them know that they did something and that you want to appreciate them for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Stack Overflow is in a way a social network. So definitely, uh, I think it applies. And yeah, paying it forward and just all adding our voices collectively to this thing is useful. But uh, interestingly, looping back to the different tools that we've listed, we now there's like, I don't know, five different ones that we've listed. And like in the past few weeks, I've been on seven different video chat tools and multiple different chat systems. And even within an organization that has things pretty well structured, there's often like, well, this is where announcements go. And this is where conversations happen. And this is where discussions and those are all three and then we have the wiki of course and that distribution of information and having the different places and then like knowing where to look is if there could be one let's let's just make one new system and it'll just have everything that we need and then they'll just be the one sound good you want to help me build that that sounds good Uh, yeah let's give up the weekend hours and and build this that sounds great (laughs) sounds like easy too i think they'll be easy we need a catchy name see if the domain's available and all the Twitter handles and whatnot. That's actually the first thing that we should do. Let's spend the next month ideating on names, preferably with as few consonants as possible. And then we'll loop back and see how this all goes. I feel like we should hook in slides somewhere there too. So that way, like you got to have it all. (laughs) I mean, it's important if it's the way that we're going to share information and it's going to be the one way then it has to have slides. I think that's just a rule. Yeah. If you, if you want to present your, your response to somebody, just bam, hit the slides. You got it. Scope creep. I'm already introducing it. <laughs> for uh, for Basecamp, that was one of the interesting challenges, at least that I ran into, was the idea, like, I still have all these different areas. Like, I still have to categorize, like, what I'm going to share and figure out where. So it took me a bit to figure out, like, what do I use Campfire for? What do I use a message for? Where am I supposed to put a message? Do I have to put it, like, anywhere specifically? It goes back to like the idea of like having less categorization for stuff, like back to my notes where it's like, I just wanted to share right away. Although I get it why it's there, but yeah, that was one of the initial hurdles that I ran into is like, I still had this application where I could communicate with people, but then I still felt uncertain as to where I was supposed to communicate and how I was supposed to communicate. Well, yeah. And in conclusion, it's complicated. There are too many places to put information, ideally fewer, maybe less synchronous. I don't know. 
Well, so to help us wrap up then, or to help us like summarize this conversation, what do you want to use for your next team? You're starting a team from scratch. Mm. What tools are you going to use for communication? This, this feels like it's a typical me answer, but the one that is most interesting to me is Twist. I really like the fact that it starts from asynchronous as the default, but has conversations and threadings and some, some other things like that. I just really like what I've seen of the thought and the approach and the philosophy that they've put into that product. I haven't actually used it, though, so it's a terrible answer. <laughs> If you're pointedly asking me if I were actually starting a thing tomorrow, I think I would probably go with Slack, and I don't like that answer, but it's default, it's known. Basecamp doesn't quite map to my mental model yet. I haven't used it as much, and the times that I've used it were very fragmented around other systems, so I don't think I would reach for that. Twist seems super interesting, but it's unproven to me yet, so I don't know. I think I would go with Slack, but I would be sad about it. How about you? I think that's fair. It's the known. I think I'd have two because I haven't used Campfire enough in Basecamp to really know if I like it or not. So I think at this point, I would still opt for Slack and Basecamp because Basecamp is feeling like the better place to have more like technical and just also like company discussions. And then as an easy way to sort of like point people to that reference if they have similar question or to be able to search. But then I still really want the Slack for like the fun. I want the silly pictures that people are going to share and all those sort of like less work related conversations that it's okay if I miss it or if something like goes flying by. So I want both. I definitely find value in the immediacy of chat as well. Sometimes I just think it can be a distraction, especially trying to like keep up with it. So it's complicated. Uh, I do find it kind of funny that at no point have we mentioned email in this conversation (laughs) just didn't come up at all. So I don't think we need to say anything more about that. But fun data point that literally didn't mention it. That's because I hate email. (laughs) Yeah, it's (laughs) like I said, we we didn't need to. (laughs) Cool. Well, now we've said the words. Now they're official and they're on the record. But uh, with that, what do you think? Should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye! This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.